You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. If you go to your first baseball game before the age of five, you will go to 58% more games per year for the rest of your life than somebody who doesn't go to their first game until age 14 or over. I mean, it is the total game changer, and yet sports don't look at a person until they turn 18. I never knitted when I was a kid. To say to, to me that when, when they turn 35, they'll come back, it's like saying all of a sudden, if, when I turn 35, I'll start knitting. It isn't gonna happen. If they don't know and love sports when they're kids, they won't pass it on to their kids any more than they pass on knitting. If what you do is recognize the one thing that will not change is we have to be with others. 85% of Americans are sports fans. 30% are avid sports fans. The broadest context of continuous engagement today in the world still is sports. And build on the human element of it rather than the transactional element on it, you'll be fine. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time is Rich Luca. He's the founder of Luca on Trends, formerly ESPN Sports Poll. And according to the website, for the past 25 years, Rich has been measuring more than 35 different sports and activities, including viewing, attendance, media, and more. Interviews occur 350 days per year with people ages 12 and up, across the entire United States. So Rich has his finger on the pulse with regard to sporting attitudes and trends across the US. He's seen a couple of what he calls epic changes. And uh, he's also got very strong views about the future of sports, particularly in relation to the growth of the internet, the growth of smartphones, and of course, the effects of COVID-19. As I said, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a consultant in sports digital, sports content, sports communication, sports journalism, basically any of those facets around sport. You can find me at mrrichardclark.com or on social at Mr. Richard Clark, E on the end of Clark. That's all you need to worry about. I've also just written a book, actually. It's called Last Wicket Stand. It's on county cricket and midlife and life, the universe and everything. There's uh, links on my website to that. And indeed, there's links to Rich on the show notes for this particular episode. So, without further ado, let's talk about sport, people's attitudes to sport, their approaches to sport, the communities they build around sports, and most importantly, how sports navigates itself out of this particular COVID hole with this man. My name is Rich Luker. I'm a social psychologist by training. I've been studying um, American social life for... Oh, gosh, no, 40 years. My first real study was more than 40 years ago. And uh, the focus has coincidentally been what people do when they get together, which is, you know, yeah, right now is incredibly timely. And my, uh, the original curiosity for me was um, realizing back in the, the 80s that with um, burgeoning technology that adolescents were finding many more avenues for trying to sort out what life was all about and that nothing in the in the literature or research on social psychology addressed that. So my, my dissertation was actually the first of its type to be a, a theory of adolescent social development that incorporated the role of the media. 
So that was the foundation of it. And then from there, um, I was teaching at Temple University in Philadelphia, and uh, which was at the time the largest communication program in the country. <clears throat> and I worked exclusively with doctoral students. And in, I, I forget now whether it was 88 or uh, sometime around then, CBS lost a half a billion dollars in one year on their baseball deal. And back in 1988, that was a massive amount of money. So I put a half a dozen doctoral students to work on it to uh, find out what went wrong, and they came back with nothing. There were no metrics that could be used to value what, what's a year of baseball and television worth. And I couldn't believe it, sent another six students out. Uh, they came back with nothing, and then I kind of dug in and realized in 1988, there was absolutely no systematic research on sports in America, none. So what I did, so what I did from there is I thought, well, there's a hole to be filled. And I thought, well, why, why is this so difficult? And, and I realized, and I'm a formally trained researcher. My, I did all of my research training at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, which was, is the largest social research institution in the world. Um, great training, never thought it would end up being applied to sports, but I started looking at the challenge and the reason that there was no research on sports fan behavior is uh, studying television is simple. It's unidimensional. You watch TV, you don't play TV, you don't attend TV, you don't do all of these other dimensions that sports are. And sports is multidimensional. To television, you watch a TV show and pretty much that's it, you go to the next one. In sports, generations of games can affect this game, let alone the games from earlier in this season, plus that moves ahead to the value of the others. So time factors into this. And I realized that was a challenge. So, but, it, but I was bit, I, that, that's all there was. I just kind of had to dig in and started, I think it was 88. And it took me the better part of four years to figure out a methodology for how you could study the full landscape of um, the sports fan experience. And there's in such a way that you talk to all Americans uh, another part of it is seasonality. I mean, most of the research you'll see on sports is one point in time, somebody does a study in June and then says, this is what sports is. But obviously seasons make a huge difference, right? So I knew if I was going to do something that's going to work, we had to collect data 365 days a year, close to that. So we do 350 days a year. The next problem was, and, and again, as you look at studies going forward, I'll, I'll not be surprised if you go, wow, that's right, they didn't do this. They'll look at only their sport. They'll only look at football and say, what are football fans like? They won't put it in a context of all sports to see where, where it stands in terms of priorities. And, and more importantly, they won't look at sports compared to other things they could do in their free time. And don't look at discretionary spending and don't look at um, uh, the amount of free time that they actually have, all these kinds of things. Uh, um, and as a result, they're not looking at all the people either. So they're not nationally representative. So you can't, you really can't monitor change because you're only looking at audiences of one sport. And then the, the real bugaboo was studying all the ways. So watching, playing, listening, following uh, through media, uh, participating yourself. So uh, figured it out probably in 92 um, and then uh, realized that nobody knew who I was. I, didn't, I had nothing to do with sports, so I had to have somebody who had a little bit more knowledge and I was dumb enough to think it would be easy to do. And I went to ESPM and they were dumb enough to say yes. So 
in uh, on January 4th, 1994, we started what was then called the ESPN Sports Poll, and it's uh, gone continuously since then. Um, and in 2017 or 18, I acquired it and uh, the, the Sports Poll and and ESPN, the NFL, all the all the major sports have been clients, all the major sponsors, all the networks. For example, ESPN and NFL from day one and are still. So we pretty much serve everybody. But the, a key thing that's important for this discussion, Richard, is, is that because I'm a social scientist, I, I needed everything based on the concept that we're talking about, which is what you do in your free time. So we have, going all the way back, measures on how much free time you have, well, how much discretionary spending you have. And most critically, uh, before I did this, I created a typology of the, the things that people can do in their free time, and there are 10 buckets, if you will. And the two key buckets are, drum roll, get ready for it. How much of a priority is it for you to spend time with your family and friends? And today, I, I'm pretty confident in saying no one has been collecting that over the last 25, 30 years. And, and, and here's why. And, and today, <clears throat> when what COVID is making us do is stay away from gathering, it completely changes the game in terms of how we see gathering with others. Before 2020, um, it, it would be insane to do a survey that says, are you breathing now? Is your heart beating? Are you able to get together with your family and friends? Those were all givens, and they're not anymore. So the focus, I, I say that to say for uh, the better part of 30 years, our, our role was to monitor the health of a healthy patient in sports and talk about the ones that were rising and falling and the dynamics that are changing things. The COVID changed everything. And this year, we have been doing diagnostics um, in, a, in a very broad, broad stretch, preparing to help the industry come out of this. That was a hell of an intro, <laughs> but uh, thanks for that. I mean, ESPN Sports Bowl was what I initially wanted to talk to you about, um, and we will talk about COVID, but I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about COVID just because it, it has a, it's a game changer for sport. But your data had already told you before COVID that sport was under uh, specific challenges. Um, and very severe challenges as well in terms yeah. of the way it was connecting with uh, younger people. So, you know, I've, I've seen some of your uh, lectures online from sort of 2018, 2019, and you were talking about drastic change being needed then because of the epic change of the internet um, and in particular smartphone usage having in a, in a way that, we'd never been connected before so could you just talk to that and, and and tell us the stress that the system the sports system the sports environment was already under before covid well thank you and and you obviously have done your homework and in fact i'll say more so than i can remember any other person who's asked me to do this so i, I thank you for that i really appreciate it again um as a social scientist grounding is everything to me in in how i look at an issue so we don't merely uh, collect the direct data about what people do in sports. We try to find what it's grounded in uh, from data that are not our own, so that we can see that the change, so that we can track the changes 
in our data relative to the changes in things that affect free time. So for example, how much free time you have, <clears throat> which there are not really any other good measures for, but discretionary spending there definitely is. And there are a number of things we discovered going all the way back uh, into the 90s that were real markers of what was happening in sports. And, and I'll share those first to get to what's been happening since 2010. Um, invariably, as the economy of the United States goes up or down, interest in sports goes up or down. The better the economy is, the more involved people are in sports, number one. Number two, if you look at the levels of interested sports, let's say avid, average, casual, and non-fans, the income categories in, in over 25 years never intersect. So in other words, those who are not fans are always the lowest income. The next level income is light. The next level income is average. And the next level income is avid. Never crosses. So it's very clear as, as the economy go, goes, so goes sports until 2010. And for the first, well, so we, and we've had some pretty dynamic things that have happened over the years. We had the dot-com bomb when the early round of the internet kind of blew up around 2000. Um, and it, it held through that. We had 9-11. It held through that. We had the Great Recession in 2008. Those two years, 2008-2009, held through that. And then all of a sudden, it started going the other way. Uh, discretionary spending was going up from 2010 until <clears throat> through 2019, and interest in sports was declining at almost as rapid a rate. So that that was an oh wow, uh, in a very big way. And and we we already had a sense of what was going on, but it was this foundational measure that said this is bigger than a blip on a screen. It's much more important than that. So go back now 15 years to, let's, well, let's say to about 2005, yeah, 15 years. And we've always tracked, we're the, oh, by the, by the way, we're the only um, uh, national survey, uh, national research on sports that includes 12 to 17 year olds, which is to me astounding. In fact, by and large, American sports don't even begin to look at a person until they turn 18. But the fact of the matter is we've been able to establish that the love of sports is locked in early. I'll give you, I'll give you a wonderful statistic that you probably bumped into. If you go to your first base, baseball game before the age of five, you will go to 58% more games per year for the rest of your life than somebody who doesn't go to their first game until age 14 or over. I mean, it is the total game changer, and yet sports don't look at a person until they turn 18, right? So that's how critical that younger age group was. And if, if you could have done, at the time, phone interviews were everything we did. Uh, if you could have done phone interviews with kids younger than 12, I would have done it, but it was illegal, and I think rightly so. So it was 12 to 17 is the youngest group we have. And in the same sense that the economy dictates <clears throat> interest in sports, age does too. There's never an intersection of this. 12 to 17 year olds are always bigger than 18, 34 is always bigger than 30, who are always bigger than 35, 54, who are always bigger than 55 plus, or any other break you wanna take. The younger you are, the more interested you are in sports. And we were able to figure out early in, in that one 
that the issue here is time. Now, the funny, the funny part of that is, of course, obviously senior citizens have the most free time, but they have reduced, well, both capability, financially, they tend to have less, and, and they're in a slowing down stage, and sports is something that's kind of fast. So never an expectation that that would ever change. That one changed first. Before the economy it, it showed the impact of a change in sports, age did. Starting in around, around 2005, we started to see slippage in the percentage of 12 to 17-year-olds who were avid fans. And, and now I'm going to step back and take on a different dimension all the way around. <clears throat> and I'll come back to this, I promise. As a social scientist, the holy grail is to identify a paradigm shift. If you get a, if you get a paradigm shift in your life, as a social scientist, uh, man, that's a great. I got two in one dynamic in a lifetime, and that's almost unheard of. Now, a, a paradigm shift, um, in, in social science at least, is where one dynamic, the change in one dynamic, affects everything in its array. It, so it's, it's not isolated, it's everything. <clears throat> and this, is, this one's very telling. So among the questions we've asked going all the way back is, what's your first source for sports information? And we ask it open-ended. So swear to God, one of the answers is my Uncle Charlie. I mean, we get thousands of, of responses to this question, but that's the way we want it because we want to know it's the true top of mind. In 1994, <clears throat> I'm going to say 70-75% said it was the newspaper. By 2000, we had the first uh, paradigm shift in that television took over. But what's in, in, in the news, as the newspaper declined, in, in, now that's in 2000. The internet's already around by then. We're doing email, we're doing other things. Google started and I think it was 1998, so it's, it's a functional thing. But it wasn't the internet that took over, it was television. And specifically, and again, it's, it's an, it was an ESPN branded product, but this is open-ended, SportsCenter. Sports Center it became the number one answer from 2000 to about 2008. And, and then in 2010, the internet took over, the, the, the second paradigm shift. And he, here's why that's critical. The internet was fully wound and, and going already by then. We had Facebook, we had all of, you know, we had the Twitter, we had all this stuff before 2010. So, and, and we overlay all the, we also have overlays of all the <coughs> development that, that takes place in, in all of the free time space, but specifically in technology. And it took us a while to figure this one out. It wasn't the internet that changed things, but, 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 but it was coincident with the decline in kids. And we figured it had to do with the fact that they were going online more, which is why their interest was going downhill. It had nothing to do with economics, nothing to do with free time. But we were curious because it, it, it started before um, uh, we saw the change in the paradigm shift as internet being first source of sports information. Um, and, and then we figured it out. It wasn't the presence of the internet. It was the uh, more massive adoption of the smartphone. The smartphone was the paradigm shift, not the internet itself, because the smartphone took the computer off the desk. When we, when we started, you know, if you asked a person and we, and we did this, here's how we discovered it. I, I'd like to say it was my brilliance 
and genius in figuring it out conceptually. That's not the way it worked. We were asking a question about how much time do you spend on the internet every day? Started going back to before 2000, uh, yeah, what, the earliest we could, whatever it was. And it made sense and we could see people edging up. And at one point, like 2012 or so, the youngest kids said they were 40% of the youngest kids were saying they spend most of the day online. I mean, that's, that's like saying, I, I like wearing dirty clothes. It's not a thing of pride, right? Who would be proud of the fact that they spend most of the day online? Um, and we're seeing, we're seeing this and we can't understand exactly what's going on because it, it goes up, goes up, goes up. And then all of a sudden, in 2009, that question is not making sense anymore. And we can't figure out what it is. It's like, what do you, what do you mean? How much time do I spend online? And then we overlaid the presence of the smartphone, which started around 2005, but it was in wide use by 2010. What we realized was the presence of the smartphone meant time was no longer relevant to one's use of the internet in the same way a clock was no longer relevant to what time it is when we started wearing watches. That in effect, the presence of the smartphone means we are always online. And that was the paradigm shift. And what happened was we backed up a little bit. I can't remember the exact year. It was after 2010, probably around 2016. 73% of 10-year-olds had their own smartphone. And the realization was that they were in a completely different world, a completely different world. So, and no one was paying attention to this. And the reason is, and again, we go far outside our data to do our looking. 65% of those who are in charge of companies, own companies in the United States are 45 years or older. What that means is that the internet and the smartphone um, are awesome accelerators to what they used to do when they were younger, but they didn't grow up with it, right? To a kid who is, who is uh, uh, today 12 years old, the smartphone is drinking water. It's not a big deal. It, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not a, it, it's, of course, it's a given. And those who are making decisions about what happens in sports see it as an accelerator and, or an addition. And a whole generation is growing up saying, no, the only thing that's relevant is what I do through my phone, period, period. And if what you're asking me to do does not sync with what I'm doing with my phone, why would I get off the couch? Why would I invest time? Why would I invest energy to go and do this stuff? So for 15 years anyway, I've been yelling and screaming at my clients and, and you know, we've got great clients saying, you've got to do something with this age group or you're, you're going to lose them. And, and now, it, oh, and in fact, we had it figured out to the point where we knew that 2026 was a critical year that in, and this was back in, in uh, 20, I don't know, 10 years ago anyway, that at that point at age 20, in, in 2026, every person turning into an adult, 18, turning 18 years old, would not know life without a smartphone. And if you don't figure out how to take the, the things that are human, that are not a part of being on a smartphone, that are not relevant to being on a smartphone, and find a way to connect them between now and 2026, 
you're 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 going to lose them. And 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 here's the point. I mean, here's the thing. So I'm talking to commissioners, I'm talking to team owners, I'm talking to you know executive type people one on one, and I'm saying, I'm saying we're losing them. We're, we've lost like 30 percent or more of the 12 to 17 year olds percentage wise of what we had 10 years ago. And they say, oh, Rich, when they turn 35 and they have kids, they'll come back. I, you, uh, I'm I'm bald, and it's because. Um, I pull my hair out every time I hear that. that I, I never knitted when I was a kid. To say to, to me that when, when they turn 35, they'll come back, it's like saying all of a sudden, if, when I turn 35, I'll start knitting. It isn't going to happen. If they don't know and love sports when they're kids, they won't pass it on to their kids any more than they pass on knitting. I, I, and, and if that one doesn't get them, the next one I'll say is, so how soon before cricket is the number one sports in America? And they'll look at me like, like I'm a Martian or something, and they're right. That'll never happen. And the only reason is, is we don't play cricket. If you don't know it, you don't play it. If you don't play it, you don't watch it. If you don't watch it, you're not a fan. So that's, that's the story of 12 to 17-year-olds and the challenge we – oh, I'm sorry. I forgot the punchline. COVID turned 2020 into 2026. Because the big part of this that's required for sports to be relevant is to play the games, which you have to do in person, and to go to the games. Like I told you with the 58% thing with, you know, take a kid to a game by the time they're age five. Both of these things are things that are required to be done in groups together. And, and for the last 10, 15 years, I've been saying to people, You've got to get people personally involved, personally involved, personally involved. The internet is, is having too much of an influence here. And then COVID comes along and everybody says, you can't be personally involved. Go online, go online, go online. One thing I took from your research as well is, and you, and you talked about it in that previous answer, the importance of building real relationships. And you used an example of, the motor car leading to um, uh, having effect on people's relationships with the horses. So, but people still wanted real relationships. So the national parks grew up in the U S and it seems to me that even though we have so much digital connection, the real relationships within sport are the things that we hold dear and that's what's not being invested in. And that's at the nub of the problem. That's certainly my take on what you've, you've been talking about. So could you just sort of talk to that point? Because it, it comes through in everything you say. Well, yeah. So as we started to see uh, declines with 12 to 17-year-olds early on, and, and we're kind of trying to sort through it. And, and of course, through all this time, uh, in, in pretty much, I mean, we work very closely with the individual sports and particularly at critical times like um, with baseball when Commissioner Seelig retired the year before and, and, and getting ready with Rob Manfred and times like that, the 50th of, of the racing. Uh, we really take deep dives. Um, and the, the, uh, we ask about what is it that makes a fan? What, what is it that's true about a fan? <clears throat> and uh, in the process of doing this, we don't just do quantitative uh, information. The quantitative is critical. It's what gives dimension to whatever's true in the underlying um, values. So, for example, we've lost 47 million um, avid fans in the last year. 
you know, which is a massive number. And, and the question is, will they come back? And, and to be able to, to, to do that kind of thing is critical. But what are the, what are the things that drive it? What, are, what's, what gets us there in the first place? And I mean, we ask everything. It's, um, you know, play and whether you have a team or a sport that uh, is active in your community, what sports there are, because obviously the, the array is different by every um, city that you're in. The size of your city, I mean, what, what happens in schools? So one of the things that really got us going in this was um, the history of physical education in the United States. Um, PE really was accelerated after World War II when they realized that uh, soldiers were not in good physical shape going into war. And they said, well, we've got, you know, this is after two world wars, I guess we really need to be ready for this. So they instituted a national physical education program and realized they had to make, make it fun, so they made sports. So for four decades anyway, three decades anyway, uh, everybody learned how to play baseball, basketball, and American football. Well, there you go. So you, you, you've made the whole population ready by what they did um, in their phys physical behaviors um, in PE. And of course, from that became competitive sports between the high schools, which then went to college. You know, colleges actually started earlier, but that, that was an investment in playing the game. And it was the only time anything was invested in, in developing the love of sports. We never, ever, ever did anything to invest in fans because they came along naturally and, and we, we didn't have to think about it. But that's really the seed of it, was the fact that you played the game so you loved it. They didn't teach us cricket, so we don't follow cricket. But, that, but there was more to it than that, and, and we knew it. It wasn't, it wasn't just, um, that, that, that isn't what energizes it, it can't be. So there had to be something that was fueling it beyond playing the game themselves because the era or the era, the period of life in which you play is relatively small and really declines quickly after age 13 when you take on music and dating and things like that um, and thinking about what you're gonna do with your life. Longer, longer part of the story, much shorter absent a relationship with somebody who already loves a sport, an athlete, a team, the, the odds of you finding that are slim. And most often it was through the love of a parent and in, in the United States, uh, especially back then, it was the love of a dad. Um, and it was a bonding experience. And it was, it was this ability in a, a single short period of time, a couple hours, to experience every conceivable emotion in a shared way, which is my sorrows are the same as my dad's, my joys are the same as my dad's, um, and it reminds me of my dad. And so we, we, we looked at that really carefully and said, well, what's the evolution of that overall belonging? And back in the 50s, it was, it was clubs too, things like what we had here, the moose and the lions and, and uh, JCs, and they, oh, these were social clubs, right? And if you were rich, you had country clubs, which were like golf courses and tennis and things like that. The gathering before, uh, before new media, gathering and in a formal, uh, committed way um, was really critical in America. But those things started to go away in the 60s, completely go away, but sports continued, they continued to hold on. So, so we looked at it, we're asking ourselves, 
what are the what are the critical roles here? What's going on? And the realization was we were losing the importance of that social connection. Media gave us this, this goes before 2000, gave us this elusive sense that we were in touch with each other. Cable television played a huge role in that because it provided, uh, instead of three channels, a hundred channels that had every kind of content you wanted and whatever you associated with, you, you could take in. And there was this um, diluted form of a sense of connection that we got out of watching television that said, hey, here are people who like cooking shows and, and so I can connect there. But, but the actual nature of social engagement was continuing to erode. <clears throat> um, the game changer in all of this was in, in the United States was clearly 9-11 that what happened with 9-11 was the awareness that uh, for more than 50 years, nothing had happened that caused us to look and say, we can't take life for granted as a, as a population before 9-11. And uh, I, I have literally, I've never lived in New York, but I've literally been there more than a thousand times in my 40 years of work. And before 9-11, um, you could define discourse between people on the street as obscenities. <laughs> plain, plain, you know, fuck the out of the way. Um, after 9-11, people were cordial and it holds to this day. It is a gentler, uh, more considerate downtown New York because of 9-11. And it got us to step back and say, are we losing, are we losing this connection um, that's that's critical to, to what we're doing. And because for all these years we were asking, how important is it for you, <clears throat> um, how much of a priority is it for you to spend time with your family and friends? And it was always at the top. Time with family was always at the top. Time with friends was second. Um, and yet we weren't seeing it manifest. We weren't seeing people actually do it. That, that around 2001, we started focusing a lot more on that to say, are you satisfied? Are you getting what you want? Do sports provide that for you? And, and the, answer was, the answer was almost literally, huh, I hadn't thought about it. Which means that it, that it was going away by lack of attention because we had so many other things in the media now that were, that were vying for our attention and amused us that we were able to continue to take for granted this kind of connection that we had. So then we said, all right, then really what's the impact on this in sports? Because in fact, like the 58% statistic that I tell you, which is probably the most important statistic in my career, the, the get to kids to games by age five, they'll go to more games than if you take them by age 14. It's not a five-year-old or a four-year-old who goes to dad and says, hey, let's go to a game. Dad does it. It's not a four-year-old who says, I want to join Little League. It's dad who does it. And dad was stopping doing that. So we dug in on the stories and we've collected hundreds of thousands of stories. We don't just do the statistics that give us the dimensions of the numbers. We want to know what's at the heart of this. And, and you know, we start often with, we don't, we don't start with a, a, a researchy kind of thing, depending on what the subject is. Um, we, we, we might say, so what's your favorite personal golf story? 
And, you know, they'll tell us about, oh, well, I was on this par three. Good. That's what I want. Because what I want to do is get a person in mind of where their love is when they love it the most. And again, 100,000 stories. And we, had a, we have a remarkable woman who's just incredibly good at intuiting these things. And she came to me one day and said, Rich, got to show you something. This, okay. Said, tattoos. I said, what? She said, tattoos. I said, what about them? She said, they're a key to about everything. I said, okay, explain. She said, I'm reading these stories and the ones where I start to cry before long, they get the tattoo. And I went, huh, tell me about it. So, and, and it was just, it was eye-opening. You look at pictures of, of people with a tattoo for the St. Louis Cardinals and you think, oh my God. <laughs> they're, they're, they're married to the Cardinals for life. What have the Cardinals ever done to say I do back? And the answer is nothing. Not on a magnitude like that. They don't have fans tattooed on their arms, right? We couldn't stop there. But now we understood what the Holy Grail was. If you love something so much, you're going to put it on your body for the rest of your life. We're on to something. So we started something we call Google Inc. Research. It's really complex, super duper <clears throat> snazzy, really hard research. And here's how it goes. Now, you may be tempted to try it, but it's rich. It's way too hard for you to do. What you do is you go to a Google on a search line, you put down anything you want, and then the second word is tattoo, and then, the, and then you push images and see what you get. And I, it, do this, please do, pick anything you want, hot dogs, rubber tires, anything you want, and see what the images are, and you are gonna be blown away. And, and we have done this very extensively. So for example, you put in toothpaste, tattoos, None. You're not going to get any. Nobody does that. It's a transaction. You, you put in Grateful Dead, you're going to get a ton of tattoos. You put in Harley Davidson, you're going to get a ton of tattoos. You want to see how popular a team is, look at their tattoos. But the fact of the matter is they scroll for pages and pages and pages and pages. What this told us was that something happened where the relationship was so great, they wanted to be marked with it for life. And, and that's all preamble to the short story. More often than not, more often than not, considerably more often than not, it was a relationship with someone that bonded them. It, it, this gets really good because we started, we saw many tattoos that would have the, the, the Cardinals and then a date, two dates, the, the birth and death date. And so what's that? That was when my grandfather was born and died. And he, he, he lived and bred. I'll tell you my, my favorite story. <clears throat> Chicago White Sox um, won the World Series in 2005. It's 1960. This woman, 53 years old, telling us a story, her, her heartfelt story. My dad was always a White Sox fan, and they lost in 1959 to the Dodgers or something in the World Series. In 1960, dad said, oh, this is the year. I know this is the year we're going to win it. And every year after that, dad was saying, oh, this is it. We're going to win it. We're going to win it. We're going to win it. He died in December of 2004, the year before they won the World Series. So the next year, they win the World Series, she goes on to say. 
and she and her three brothers go to the decide to go to the cemetery to plant a White Sox flag uh, in the grave of their at the grave of their father, only to find a thousand other flags from other people had already been planted on the graves of their loved ones. That's the strength of relationship. That's what we're talking about. Here's the punchline. <clears throat> so I've been doing this stuff for 40 years. And as we're starting to learn this stuff and I'm incorporating it, incorporating in, in the presentations I make around uh, 2004, after 9-11, people are still sensitive about relationships. And, and we're talking, I'm talking about how the nature of our society is what determines what our community is and our ability to be community. And, and that in the 1800s, we were farm families and we worked together. So family was the heart of community. Our sports were associated with it. By, the, by 1950, it was manufacturing. So our communities were our communities. And because most of us were working in, in factory type situations or in offices. And by 2005, better than 80% of the workforce was in the service sector and you can do it from anywhere and you don't have to be with anyone and we don't have community. And I would say, I would tell people this and they go, oh my God, tell me more. So 2005, 2006, I am getting 10 to one requests to speak about community versus speaking about sports. I've been doing this for 40 years. I have people asking me to write books all the time. I've only written one and it's called Simple Community. And it's about the loss of community and the simple things we can do to rebuild it. Um, and the fact that we're paying no attention to it. And no one is affected more by this than sports. And, and I know we said, maybe we won't go too much into COVID, but here's the biggest challenge we see. And there are many uh, in COVID. There is fear, which with uh, the Great Depression in America lasted 50 years until the 80s. There's tangible, which is I'm, my health, my money, my job, my having to take care of others. So I have no time. Um, there is social unrest and there, that's a whole nother issue we could talk about. And then there is social lethargy, what we call social lethargy, which is what we saw going, raising before COVID. And in fact, in 2018 and 19 were the first two years that the priority for spending time with family and friends declined in nearly 40 years of doing this research. And time online as a priority was growing, right? So the, the, the challenges are clear in all of this that what's happening is for 10 years, I've been saying, if, if you do not invest in fans, you have as much luck of them coming back as expecting them to start knitting when they're 35. You gotta get them off the couch and get them out there playing the games, and going to the games and, and they were the, your, remember why you have that tattoo on your arm and pass it on. And then COVID comes along and what happens? All of the recommendations are stay at home, stay on the couch. And what does that mean? You're on the couch, you're expanding your horizons on what you see online, you realize there's more, you're getting more proficient at it so you can get more out of it. The quality of it is increasing all the time this thing ends, why in the hell would you get off the couch? It takes time, it takes effort, it takes money. And, and in fact, the assumption was, well, as soon as this thing's over, people are gonna be so pent up that they're gonna go back. 
Well, we saw from the television renewals here that yes, for about the first game or two, you saw blockbuster ratings. And after that, it fell apart because there are more engaging things that, that can be done on the internet than watching sports. So the fact of the matter is, if we don't invest in the love of sports, and, and the Major League Baseball thing is the best I know. Uh, one of the teams, in fact, made it so it's free to go to a game before H9. If you don't do things like this, you never had to invest in them because you had no competition before this. In the 1960s, there was, nothing, the 60s, there was nothing else to do in your free time but play sports and, and be a sports fan. Now, and it was, and by the way, sports on my 10 bucket list has always been at the bottom and I didn't understand it until the last five years. If, if there's nothing else to do, you don't have to prioritize it. But as soon as something else comes, if there's a second thing, spend time online or spend time on sports, whichever one you choose is, guess what? That's your priority. That's what you prioritize. And now there is very direct competition to sports. If you don't invest in your fans, if you don't invest in players, you've got as much luck uh, of seeing this come back as cricket being number one in America or you knitting at age 60. One thing that has grown up in the in the last uh, ten years certainly is is CRM in sports, customer relationship management, and you know how you how you interact and that developing that relationship. It might be through email marketing or digital marketing, but it's still seen as relationship building, and that's based on segmenting your audience. Now, one thing that I've seen you speak about. It strikes me as very true that we talk about uh, millennials or we talk about Gen X and Gen Z or, or whoever they are, but they're very, very broad. And one right. thing that you've been talking about, particularly in that teen area, that seems to be absolutely critical. And it's interesting because the teen market, particularly the female teen market, drove uh, record sales, uh, the pop charts for years from what I could see. Right. And there right. seems to be a lot of research into that, but they didn't look right. at it vis-a-vis -vis sports. And it seems to me you've got your 10 to 12s and your 13 to 16s right. and your 18s to 21s or whatever it is. They're very different. And Correct. yet we just see them as sort of teen adolescent fans. So how, would, how do you view them differently? Well, well so there, there are really kind of two things at work here, a CRM um, being the first of them. The, um, and, and I'm going to lump two things together on this first half, Custo uh, customer relationship management and social, social networking. Um, neither of them are true. What, what they are is um, transaction drivers. They don't, care, they don't care about the people. They don't care about the, the, the people who fall into those segments in CRM. All they care about are what are the things I need to do to get them to buy more. That's all they care about. Um, and social social networking is neither. <clears throat> it's not social and it's not networking. What, for example, Facebook is no more than um, your high school yearbook with somebody writing a note on it saying, have a good life, you were a cute kid, right? It's not, it isn't interactive. You're not seeing the impact, the social impact of, of your communication with a person um, through what is called social networking. So it isn't. It's social connection. I'll give you that. You're staying in touch, but it's not social connection. And with CRM, it's transactional analysis. It's not relational analysis. So I'll, I'll give you the illustration going back to tattoos. Nobody has a Colgate toothpaste tattoo. And, and here's, here's how that works. You buy 
toothpaste as a transaction. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it doesn't happen like this. Oh, Rich, uh, you know what? I'm about to run out of uh, toothpaste. Um, when, when this is done, you want to go with me? You know, last time I got it at a drugstore. Let's, I'll go, let's go to a grocery store and buy toothpaste. You want to go with me? You think I was freaking nuts. It, it, we, we don't have a relationship around the things that are transactions for us. In fact, transactions are transitions. So in other words, I'm talking to you now, which is my life and it's relational. And after I'm done with this, I'm going to get together with some friends, not true, but for illustration, because of COVID, I'm not. And on the way, I'll stop at the drugstore and pick up a tube of toothpaste. It's a transaction. And all of what's going on in CRM today is looking at how can I become more sharply focused on selling a specific thing to a specific person with specific characteristics. And because they call it customer relationship management, they think they're done. And so when you stop, so, so the, the, the reason it's critical to say this is the first point is that their intent is wrong. That's like a surgeon coming into the operating room with a wrench. It's, it's a great tool if you're working on a car, but if you're working on a human being, you've got to have something that's far more sensitive to that. And that is why they do not break it down into smaller increments to understand what's going on. Um, and yes, indeed, and, well, in fact, the real challenge in all of this is, I, I, I have four grandkids. My second youngest grandkid is four years old. She speaks fluent Russian and English. She's working on Spanish now. She knows how to read. And she, and she, uh, she navigates the internet better than I do. Four years old. So the ship sails long before adolescence today. And, and to, to my knowledge, nobody's watching this. Nobody's paying attention to what this is. There is one group, and these people would be a fascinating discussion for you too, KIDSAY, K-I-D-S-A-Y. Uh, they study five to 15-year-olds. And, and they got a guy, oh, uh, I can't think of Dark Gun. I can't think of his name. If you're interested and you want to talk to him, let me know. I'll make a connection for you. But they do their research is all um, discussion and understanding the kinds of things at a very early age that, that are taking place. Um, and in fact, kids are are well, here, here there was a book that came out. So the, the only book I ever wrote was on community. It was called Simple Community. And around, and that was in 2008. Um, and the reason, the reason I wrote that book was I was getting 10 to 1 more requests for talks about uh, human relationships than I was in sports. And at the same time, a book came out called The Dumbest Generation. And this guy's premise was, and this is speaking directly to your point here, this guy's premise was because less than half of the population could say who their senator was, they were the dumbest, the dumbest people in the world. And I'm going, no, this is the dumbest book in the world. Our kids today, we, we grew up being uh, an inch wide and a mile deep. We had to learn math. We had to memorize math tables. You don't need to do that anymore, right? Today's, what, what he was saying was, there's no depth to these kids. 
that, that, that they're an inch deep and a mile wide. And that's absolutely true. But the fact of that matter is they've totally mastered the tool for whatever inch they look at to be able to go completely up or down as far as they want to go. And they do. They do. So, the, so there are several things that are changing the way we have to look at kids and adolescents and human beings as a whole, which is why that 2026 number was so critical, that at that point, this will be the way they live a, a, a universe-wide with the ability to reach the entire universe instantaneously through this wonderful tool called the internet. And we, on the other hand, are still going seven times seven is 49. It, it, it doesn't work that way. So, so the social interactions in this change as, as well. Um, the last great generation gap in, in the United States was when I was growing up in the 60s and it was, ideology, it was ideological. We disagreed on politics. But the fact of the matter is my mom and dad knew more about how to live, how to earn money, how to uh, get a job, how to do all those things. And, and they were indispensable in that regard. All right, so now go to about 1995 and there's a thunderstorm somewhere and the power goes out and then it comes back on. You're, you're a parent and you've got a, a, uh, some young kids and the VCR comes back on and the clock is flashing 12 o'clock. We've all had this thing and, and what, how do you fix it? Now, and I'll make this illustration in presentations and people raise their hands and, and they get it right. So if you find the closest six-year-old and have them reset the clock. So, so the key issue here is you now are having a conversation with your 14-year-old son and you're trying to talk to him about, about some important issue of life. And he's, he says to you, Pop, why should I listen to you about politics, work, education, love, religion, my job, where I live, buying a house when you can't set a clock? And the fact of the matter is somewhere in here in 2000 is a pretty good touch point. Uh, they woke up to this and they realize that, that this, that is the, about the same time the, the final generation, our, my, my parents died, uh, last generation gap died, the new one formed and it is not ideological, it is functional. And these kids are better prepared to function in the world than their parents are. So I change the question and say, it's not the markers. I think we have to step back first and understand the paradigm shift of youth. And, and the reason I say that is, whatever answer I give you today to say how to break down how you look at 12 to 17 year olds will not be a, the same answer as what I'll say in next year for 12 to 17 because things are changing so remarkably, uh, the, the, the concept we use for this is fluidity. And the thing that, and, and, the, and the, so this is the punchline on this one. The point is, we, we cut these things up in generations. We now ask about, well, what about 12 to 17 year olds and what do they look like? Kids, and that's because we grew up in a time when an epic change took place once every 30 years and took 10 or so years to get there. Look at the vaccines today. Uh, six months ago, they said it takes five years to develop a vaccine, and today we are shooting vaccines for COVID in less than a year, right? I mean, everything is happening at a much faster pace. What is fundamental to this, the biggest change is change itself. And anyone under the age of 18 doesn't even understand the idea of we have to wait to see what this does. 
because they understand everything is fluid. We're at a state of fluidity where whatever you're doing, um, in fact, your smartphone updates in a way that uh, in a way that would rival the shuttle that landed on the moon in terms of its technology every day, sometimes two or three times a day behind the scenes and we don't even think about it. So the, the, the point I'm saying here is today's kids are fluid and what's important to them today will not be the same thing that is the same for them three days from now. So it comes down to what are the things you can then build on given that we now live in fluidity and it's, there is one and it has several char characteristics to it. Being a human being is the only thing that is constant. You will not be an adolescent uh, uh, before you're a child. A child will not feed and clothe their parents. So we know that physical growth will stay the same. A child will not feed and clothe their parents. So we know economics will change. You can always count on 18 to 34-year-olds spending the most money in, in, in fluidity because they will be paying for more than themselves. We will, our emotions will not change. Sadness will be the same, joy will be the same. What stimulates them will differ, what delivers them will differ, but those emotions will be the same <clears throat> and we will not live our lives in pods. We will be social, we need to be social, people will invent that and that is the key to sports in the future. If what you do is recognize the one thing that will not change is we have to be with others and the broadest 85% of Americans are sports fans, 30% are avid sports fans, the broadest context of, of, of continuous engagement today in the world still is sports and build on the human element of it rather than the transactional element on it, you'll be fine. But, but unfortunately, certainly in my experience in UK sport, it's gone the opposite way in the last 20 to 30 years. Whereas as, as sport has become more of a business, it's become exactly more transactional, more bit, more people from outside business are coming in to run sports clubs, sports <clears throat> franchises. And that personal relationship has been eroded. And you know, we, we, we've got the, 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 the Premier League, the, the most global um, sports league in the world. And that's become all about money and not about the sport itself and what you are saying is you need to invest emotionally in what sports means it's its identity the 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 relationship you have with the club and what we've seen is exactly the opposite and of course they've been making money so they've not seen the need to take on what is the the innovators dilemma of basically fixing the plane while you're flying it because it's been flying okay for a lot of them, shall we say. So you, said, you, you said two things there, and I'll, I'll address them um, in turn. I, I, whenever this comes up, and it comes up often, I'll, say to, I'll ask them, whether it's a team owner or a commissioner or whoever it is, I'll say, what do you sell? And they're like, oh, oh, well, we sell tickets and advertising and hot dogs and, and whatnot. And uh, what do your fans buy? Well, they buy tickets and says whatnot. I, I, I say to them, 
if you don't have a relationship with a team, why would you spend 50 bucks to buy a shirt? It's not, why, and this is where, and you may use this, please, we, we want to see people use this. Why would you get a tattoo? A transaction is never going to lead to a tattoo. Because a tattoo is for life. And what you're saying to me when you say you sell tickets and you sell hot dogs is that you don't understand your product. Your product isn't tickets and hot dogs and ratings. Your but they made the but they made the assumption that the fans are always going to be there, so they've not invested in that in that relationship. Here's the second part of the answer. Then here's the second part of the answer. So go back to what I said. There were stable things like the the more the income, the more you are in sports. The younger you are, the the bigger a fan you are. Um, that was true until three years ago. And this is stunning. In America today, there are more people 35 plus who are avid fans of sports than 12 to 34s. And here's why this is the answer to your question why it's so critical. In the same way I said, uh, the smartphone is an accelerator for anybody over age 35 because they didn't have it growing up. So, wow, this is great. It that's also true in sports. Anybody 35 plus has this, all this wonderful technology to make their sports experience that much better. When I was growing up in Ann Arbor, they allowed uh, Michigan football to be on national television once a year. So whenever that happened, everything stopped in Ann Arbor. It just stopped. So, so for us, it's this huge accelerant. Um, and the fact of the matter is the baby boomers were this massive generation and they're phenomenally wealthy. So people 35 plus have more money and are spending more money. And that's why all this stuff is happening. But as soon as that generation ages out and this 2026, when these people hit 18, that the spigot's off, man. If you don't hear those two things, that it's relationship and that the generation growing up is, is living in a different epic than you are. If you don't hear that, you're, you're going to be knitting. I completely agree. My point was that sport has been set up. Sports on both sides of the Atlantic have been set up on the assumption that the fans will always be there and they're squeezing the pips monetarily on the fans. And, and, and I do, but I agree with you that you see, uh, and I know you've talked about this before. My, my son is, is, uh, he's, uh, he's 13. He's, he's playing so many games at the moment and he's starting to get interested in esports, and right. that is set up to um, eat a lot of, traditional sports lunch in my exactly. opinion exactly well well the thing we and and, and the, the the dynamic we have to build on i don't know what's going on on your side but um here we have spontaneously begun to see in neighborhoods five o'clock cocktail hours if you will and what what that means is people set up on their driveways everybody's on their own driveway so they're socially distanced but they're talking across the street to each other nobody planned that it just happened. People just did this. There is such a need for people want to get to the tattoo. And, the, and my, my take on this is 
somebody smarter than me is going to say, if I build on relationships, I am going to be dominant because I don't care what technology does. We are social beings. You will be 15 after your age 10, not before. You will always want to be together. If we don't build it, somebody will, because we, we are not going to stay inside for the rest of our lives. Sports is not going to be as big as it was. Yeah. I tell you what's really interesting. Part of my job as a consultant is I um, help clubs, organizations, sports uh, franchises find their story. Because what I found with the Huge. way they create social media and content is it's they're only speaking to existing fans. They're not going to create new fans with the stories that they're creating. My, my latest client is an esports team that is trying to create, and of course, they don't have the depth of story of, you know, a college football team or an NFL team, or let alone an English Premier League club that goes back the best part of 150 years. They go back three years, but they're trying to create story because they know they need to differentiate themselves. And of course, all their, all their fans, all their supporters are looking for authentic relationships that resonate around the story. But it's interesting that esports are trying to do that. Um, and my point is, it, it's it, every touch point of your of your relationship with your fans must uh, feed back into that story loop and constantly kind of snowball it. Otherwise, it's never going to work in an esports environment because there isn't that depth. Whereas, you know, I'm a I'm an Arsenal fan because my dad was an Arsenal fan, and exactly, and that's it. <laughs> well, let me give let me give you an illustration there because of course here they say esports is the salvation of sports and. And actually, if it was accurately called, it would be e-first-person e shooter because the, uh, the, the biggest and, and the most play is, is in uh, first-person shooter or even sim games. It's not in classical sports. So let me give you the illustration of um, a deep dive that we did that really lays out the challenge here. And that was the poker phenomenon of about 10 years ago. Um, the, and I don't know if you guys had the same phenomenon uh, in Europe that we did. That yeah. the, with the World Series of Poker, and it, bit, yeah. just, it just overtook everything. And, and um, as it was happening, of course, we were studying it. We, we, had, uh, we went in, in depth on this and, and trying to figure out what was going on. Well, here's, here is what happened there, and it's very parallel to esports. Um, before World Sports, the, 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 uh, the, the tournament, um, 25% of Americans at some time or another played, to, played poker. It was a much wider engagement than anybody appreciated, but it lived on the dining room table on Friday nights, and it was something close, and it was personal. It was social. It was important. It was really important. And, and poker on television in the United States never worked at all. It just didn't work until ESPN showed the cards and and when they showed the cards so you could see how the person was playing it that's what changed everything and and so it, it explodes we're looking at it and i said and and i'm I, i'll never forget this i've had a senior executive meeting at espn and they're saying to me rich how long of a window do you think this world series poker poker is i said no more than three years and they and they yelled at me said oh you're full of shit look at this everybody's doing it the Lifetime Network has poker on it. You CNN, it does poker in between. I said, yeah. 
And I said, and as soon as everyone, all the 25% of Americans, which is close to 100 million, um, uh, know how to play an 8-5 offsuit, they're gone. The same thing is true with esports. They're not watching for personalities. They're watching for game tips. The same thing is true with golf and tennis. They're not watching because their parents did it before. They want to know how to play a one-handed backhand, right? And as soon as they've got that down, they're gone. I'm not sure you find a social element, but 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 here's the here's the here's the thing that people don't appreciate. And it comes back to why I spent all the time on fluidity. We're thinking of it as, wow, esports is this thing that started in, let's say, 2000 and will be the same in 2020. No, esports started in 2000, and the hot game is going to be a different one by 2000 by by June and then by by January. So it will be a constantly renewing audience because people will constantly want to know how to play the new game. It's not relational; it's transactional. So and it's a business. you're not thinking esports is long term. You're not thinking esports is long term. Is that? What oh, I think esports is definitely long term, but I don't. I I think it's sequential. I don't think it's relational. It's going to go from one game to the next to the next to the next to the next. And the esports people who figure out how to teach people how to master it in way they, ways they can beat their friends will be the one who wins. In the same way, in sports, those who figure out how to do it relationally will win because it's about relationships. Esports is not about relationships. It's about the personal play. So here's, here's the thing. Esports exploded for one reason and one reason only. There were already a billion people playing the game when it started. And what it did was connect them, number one. And number two, because of the internet, you could have a global property. Before the internet, you couldn't do that. So the, so the key to this is, the key to this isn't, it isn't the personality of a certain character as much as it is, um, what is their secret sauce that they're willing to share? And if you want to make it social, in, in poker, it's what's the art of the bluff, right? Because knowing the odds of an 8-5 offsuit is completely different about knowing which seat I am to the, to the disc and whether I bluff with an 8-5 now or I wait until we get to the river, right? So the strategies are what or what people are hungry for here, less than the personalities. They want to know what the tells are in poker, right? So, and that's, it'll never make sense in my mind for there to be the Detroit esports team. It's not geographical. You don't play it in your park. It's, there's nothing about it that's geographical anymore than it made any sense anytime a, a racing group has tried to come up with the, you know, the New York, Dale Earnhardt's. It doesn't make any sense. It's not a social experience. That's interesting. Because I look at the esports in particular and the games that the games titles that have worked on esports are very, very old. Of course, it's not new games. It's League of Legends. It's CSGO. These are, these are old titles. And those ones are the ones that have lended themselves to, to competitive esports. You know, Fortnite might be the hottest game or was the hottest game but it's not turned into any, it, it has an aspect of esports around it, but it just hasn't turned into it. So 
are you saying that, that if people are coming for tips, is it sort of generations coming through that are discovering the game, getting those tips, and then moving on? Correct. Right. Okay. Correct. I've not heard that. Well, one. But there's, there's one piece to this, that if there's room at all for this to be different, it's the team format of games rather than individual mm. play. That, there, there may be something there. There may be something there. But again, the, the challenge, how, how long can it be an old game when the technology is making this new game far more challenging, far more exciting? I mean, the kids' generation's got the same problem on steroids in that the, the, what's coming up will be so much better than what they have now. Does it really make sense to stick with what we're doing? And I'll give you the parallel there. Why don't we watch chess on TV? Do, have you seen the, uh, the the series, The Queen's Gambit? Yes, I have, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Wasn't that wonderful? Very good. I yeah. love that. Yeah. It, but that is the only time in life that it made sense to watch chess. Yeah, it's had it's had it's had moments, but no, it's not a TV sport because it's right because it's not got action. You know, it's right. it's cerebral, right? So, um, I, I was gonna so I was gonna ask at the end about COVID, and um, you talked in an article you 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 sent me through as preparation for this. It talked about the things that needed to be done to counteract the problems for the sports industry on the back of COVID, and, and the solutions were based around community, getting young fans back in stadium, revolutionising the live telecast, and importantly, bringing sports to where the fans are. So I suppose the, 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 we talked about community, we talked about young fans. Um, it's the last two that I'm interested in, revolutionising the game cast and bringing sports to where the fans are. What's, what's the theory there? We, we have increasingly done more work at the team level where, so, so everybody has CRM pretty much, right? And teams do too. It's mostly around their um, season ticket holders. But one of the things that we discovered in the process of this research, and this goes back a lot of years, is, is that there's a catalyst um, in all social engagement. We call them instigators. Um, and by that, I mean, and you, you, you'll, you'll, you will probably instantly realize this, that um, whether you do something with your family or friends, if you think about when you get together with your family, it's almost always the same person who makes it happen. Can you think of who that is in your family? Yeah, yeah, okay. They're the instigator. But the smile on your face, because I can see your face, tells me, that's novel. We don't think about it. it the, and by the way, the odds are it's you because instigator types tend to be those who are out front culturally and socially and, and in ways that do the work that we do, that tends to be you. Similarly, though, with your friends, there is a one with your friends get together. It's always the same guy who does it. Or if you want to do something, you call that guy and say, hey, what do you think about? Because, you know, they're the ones who will get it together. When you look at all of the statistics around attending games, no, the, the, less than 5% of tickets are an individual ticket. In fact, the average is three, 3.5 tickets, right? It's always the same person who buys the tickets. So let's start there. And roughly 20% 
uh, of all Americans at least, and I would imagine this is pretty true socially, are instigators. They're either the primary person in their family or among their friends. So in other words, they are the drivers of all of this. And the culture of the sport, the culture of the team resides in the instigator. So the key is to identify these people, profusely thank and reward them, enable them, ask them, what is it about the characteristics of the game that are critical to them? What is it that, where, where do these stories come from? And then work with um, the front lines of your troops. Now, what do I mean by that? The front lines of your troops in a team sport is not the fan, it isn't the team, it isn't the front office, it's your play-by-play -play announcers. They are our most valuable players in this. And we've had some incredible results here in the States with this, where once we shared the stories and, 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 and socialized the play-by-play -play guy with what their fans are like, then they were able to take the game and what they were seeing and say, it's just like Fred told us when they're getting together and in their neighborhood, this neighborhood, they do this. They're able to personalize and bring the game directly into the environment where it lives. But you gotta have relationship to do that. <clears throat> and the fact of the matter is the tools for relationship exist because you do have CRM, you do have season ticket holders and the vast majority of your instigators are season ticket holders. And going beyond that then, you create the experiences that, that are the next best thing to you putting on a tattoo of your fan to say, how can I, what can I do for you that would be as meaningful to us as your tattoo is to us? And it is, I'd love to meet this player. I'd love to do this thing. And, and we're increasingly doing that. And guess what? If you know the people with whom to do that, they're going to tell everybody. And, and what, what started out as a person being, bringing their friends is now they're doing three or four buses a year in an experience. Or the foul weather fans, a bunch of college kids who are taking over the, the attendance of baseball games during April and May when it's too cold for families to come out, right? So what you do is you take what was your prescribed baseball or football experience and learn from the fans what made it that for them and enable that, empower that, and you do it through your instigators. So last question, you sort of spelt out your four points to help sport create uh, a pathway back after COVID. Um, what are your, but, but looking further forward, what are your, um, what are your signs of hope and what are your worries? I suppose that that's my last question. Well, um, okay. So in the United States, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci is, uh, is a household name. Is, or is he overseas too? Yeah, yeah, we've we've had him on our new shows quite a lot. Okay, so and he's on all the time saying exactly the same things, which is you know wear a mask and and do social distance and things like that. There's something about him 
that's avuncular. You know, it feels like he's he's a distant relative of yours. That's that that comforts you, but the message that he's giving is a comforting message about how not to get sick and die. So it's a it's a message about how to avoid um, the bad news. And what somebody said to I got to tell you what somebody said to me a while ago was, what we need is a uh, Fauci for how to live. That there's that there's conceptually something in place, that that says that there's equally a lightning rod here that says we know we want to and we need to gather, and and that's kind of what we're aiming at here with addressing these things. If you're afraid, we'll inspire you. If you are tangibly um, unable, we will enable you through instigators to, to get people involved. If you're a little bit more in, uh, uh, indifferent to it, we'll encourage you. But, but here, is, here to me is the critical message that starts the activity taking place. Um, and I'll, I'll mention, um, we've had a number of conversations. I have another one this afternoon with uh, members of the transition, members in government for the new administration. In the same way, there was something like, and I think this was in one of the stories, uh, a pre president's council on physical fitness, a president's council on community gathering now, because he, here is the key point. Before COVID, we were able to take gathering for granted in the same way we take breathing and our hearts beating. Um, if we do nothing, social, social gathering will continue to decline on all fronts because of social lethargy, not because of fear, not because of inability or tangible things, not because of social issues, but because it's just too easy to stay on the couch, um, get online to get a weather forecast and two hours later be watching a cat video. It has to be conscious. And we are aware of the fact that we want to be with others and, and, and but we have to do it in a way that's more tangible. So by identifying your instigators, empowering them with the messages and the tools they need to gather their communities, we believe we'll be able to get more people sooner, more often with a greater level of fulfillment than they had before COVID because we'll no longer be able to take gathering for granted. We had a, a, about an entire year where we couldn't get together and that never happened before. The secret to this working is a Fauci of gathering who's making that point and saying, now you know what it feels like when you can't gather, you're gonna have a hard time getting off the couch. Do you wanna feel this way for the rest of your life? In the same way Fauci says, wear the mask, be social distancing. When this is over, get off the couch, get out, throw a ball go to a game, visit your neighbors, do these things. And I do believe in the same way it's simple for what Fauci is saying, it's that simple for us too. And our hope, uh, uh, frankly, I'm looking for a major benefactor to fund research that will allow us in the same way we did sports, but in a non-profit non form to monitor what happens with gathering going forward in the same way we've monitored sports all these years so that we can identify the things that work and be able to publish. Here's like, like the driveway cocktail parties, things like that nature, shine a bright light on that. 
but it starts with getting to people people to realize you didn't consciously choose to be on the couch and become an internet potato you took we all took gathering for granted you have to choose to get off the couch well, I'll put all your details in the show notes. So if there is any benefactor out there, they can get in touch. But otherwise, Rich Luca, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com.